Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Lake Dye, entrepreneur, engineer, venture capitalist, professor, and all-around creator. For over 20 years, Lake has led product and engineering teams globally, including at Alibaba, Apple, and Yahoo. She is a recognized expert in several things from search engines and ad platforms to analytics and mobile platforms and applications, holding several patents in many of those areas. And in this episode, we discuss what it was like for Lake to grow up in China with two engineering parents who, surprisingly, encouraged her to not be an engineer. And after a brief stint in economics and marketing, she focused on being a creator and returning to her interest in engineering and product creation. We talk about what it was like to be one of the earliest employees at Alibaba, working out of Jack Ma's garage and creating the first generation of travel products, along with her successes at Yahoo, among several other ventures. Lake's primary drivers of growth inspire me. She says, never stop learning. She shares that knowledge with others and, and she builds a community and an ecosystem that she wants to be around. I've learned so much from Lake and her humility, her curiosity, and her overall sense to create and share. Please enjoy this interview with the remarkable Lake Dai. Hi, Lake. So great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. And a very big thank you to our colleague, George, for connecting us. We were speaking about some project that I was working on that applied to machine learning, and your name had come up. And he had mentioned, well, do you know Lake Dye? And I said, I don't. He goes, oh, my gosh, you have to talk to her. She has so many patents, and she's done things from search algorithms to data analytics. And I just, as he was telling me more about your background, I'm like, oh, my goodness. So I'm very grateful for the introduction. Thank you to George. And so the listeners would have heard a preview of your story and what an amazing success story it is. You were an early engineer at Alibaba. You've worked at firms like Yahoo and Apple and many, many others. And your title is so many things from venture capitalist, engineer, entrepreneur. But many of our listeners know that we like to start from the very beginning of where people grew up. And so if you don't mind sharing with our listeners where you grew up. I joke about it. I said I'm made in China because I was born in China, raised in China, got my undergrad there, worked for a number of years before I moved to U.S. So that's very different from many, I would say, Silicon Valley first-gen immigrants because many of them just come here, study first before they work for companies. I was born in Beijing, and at age of two, I start travel with my parents, different cities in North China. So my parents were aerospace engineers, and based on the project, I just travel with them to a lot of different places. Very hot, <laughs> very cold, <laughs> away from the city. It was a fun childhood. 
And so at the age of two, you started traveling with your parents who are both engineers, which is exciting. Did you think, okay, I want to be an engineer when I grow up, just like my parents? It was pretty much a default for me to be engineer. <laughs> the reason I'm saying this is that not just my parents, my grandparents on my dad's side, my mom's side, all the cousins, all the uncles. It was really funny when we have a large family get together, let's say wedding or other holidays, and there are hundreds of us, and then people call like in Chinese this dai gong, which means engineering dai, and everyone's like turn around like what you call me. <laughs> so it was also a default that I will be an engineer, but my undergrad degree is actually not in engineering, it's in econ. So and so where did you go to college? How did you pick the major and also the university that you decided to go to? I went to a university is in tier one, but it's not top of the tier one. So <laughs> I was going to joke about it. But I think it's a great school because I have met so many lifelong friends from the school because it's relatively smaller compared to some Peking University, Tsinghua University. So I'm still talking to my classmates every month and we still get together. All classmates still closely connected. I really love that experience. That's amazing. Well, so how did you switch from thinking you're going to be an engineer by default to being an econ major? This is quite interesting because my mom, even though she is airspace engineer, she had experience that it was a struggle for women to be in the engineering field. So her concern is that if I will continue my path in engineering, even though I could achieve many different things, I may not be recognized. So that's her personal experience. She just tried to make some recommendation to me. And then at age of 18, 19, parents' recommendations are considered <laughs> and sometimes are reinforced. But it's pretty funny that regardless how I started in college, I still end up in engineering at the end of the day. Well, so how did that happen? So you graduated with an econ degree, but then when did it go back to engineering? It was interesting because right after college, I had an opportunity to work for an airline company. And it was cruising job, highly compensated. And you don't have to do much work because in airline company, the marketing department I was in, a lot of major work is to determine a distribution price and a seasonal price. And of course, that's a cushy job. And then people really want to establish a good relationship with you. But I felt like I didn't learn anything from that experience. And I was always passionate about technology. So I told my parents that I'm going to quit this coaching job because I'm not learning anything from it. And I'm going to look for a tech company to join. And I don't want to do administration or anything that's not related to creating stuff. And everyone said that I was crazy because back then, in order to, first of all, I was making probably two to three times more than my classmates. And this is, you never get fired from that job. You can keep it forever. And I don't even have a company to join. I just say I want to join, but I want to quit. So I can full-time looking for a job. So got a lot of pressure from my parents. And plus, I had to pay a penalty of breaching the contract. How does that work? What contract is this? You had mentioned this in a prior conversation, but if you can share what that meant, because I think it's interesting and even more courageous that not only did you quit, not have a job, but you actually had to pay <laughs> to get on. <laughs> had to pay. I think that back then it was close to a year of salary. The reason I had to pay is because I was the last year of a student that government-sponsored, like fully government-sponsored student. We didn't have to pay tuition. 
And as part of it, you have to work for either for government or for state-owned enterprise, and then you don't have to pay anything either. I actually even still today, I don't know that's a legit request for the companies that I have to pull the contract and pay for the breaching of the contract because I was wondering, you didn't pay for my tuition. The government paid for the tuition for all the students, and why I have to pay you? Oh, so you had to pay the company. Interesting. I thought you'd have to pay back the government. Yeah, I had to pay the company. They're like, okay, so because we're part of this system, blah blah blah. But all the different excuses. But obviously, they were pissed. They were trying to make it difficult. And then at the time, in order to find a job, you have to have your personal profile document. If you don't have access to it, then you can't get a job. They were holding that profile. I had some bonus, seasonal bonus, and then add up together. I just you know, okay. Whatever you give it to me, and I'll pay you back, and I'm out of here. Then afterwards, there was three months of miserable job hunting <laughs> experience because I had zero experience. I don't recommend this to everyone, but it was interesting because it forced me to think about what I really want, and it forced me to do tons of research of all the technology companies out there. What they're looking for, and I talked to tons of people who have been working in the company to understand which department they are in, what kind of daily routines. And I was very clear, and I don't want to be in GNA. I want to be in product engineering. And back then, product engineering was given to people who had experience. So I was very fortunate. I <laughs> do an introduction, and I was able to get a temporary job at Apple. Apple China. So Apple at the time we have we had a very small office. I believe in Apple Greater China we had maybe twenty people, twenty thirty people max. In Apple China we just have less than ten. Wow. We had less than ten people there. So of course then once you get your way in and then you try to demonstrate your value, you can do many other things and that turn into a full time job. So that's how I started, and I definitely feel that、like、I was lucky. Amazing. And what was your role at Apple China in the marketing department? It's interesting. Is is that is a combination of marketing, product, and Apple Care all lumped together. So I had access to all the Apple China users' database. So you maintain the database, and you try to figure out, do some analytics to see market opportunities, product. And I was very interested in a problem I had at the time, which is. Apple China back then didn't have inventory, so if we want to sell a new product or if we want to repair a product, we have to contact Singapore. And then there is demand and supply prediction. So that was very fascinating for me. And for econ, it's all about modeling demand, supply, and pricing. So I was working on that with the engineering team, and I thought it was really, really interesting. And the other thing I did was. At my twenties, I had tons of energy. I didn't have much to do after work, so I spent some time with my friends to explore internet. So in the late nineties, what we had in, on internet was Yahoo Directory, email system, ICQ Messenger. I think I'm giving away my age. Oh, I love ICQ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right with you then. <laughs> and then there were some of the chat rooms and the blogs, and I was. Fascinated because well, I was a chief editor in high school and I like writing. So like, okay, so there are blogs about writing novels. There is also a community 
talking about established people relationship and all that. So little as I know, that within just a few weeks into it, I was able to become the manager for chat room and blogs, and would become top ten <laughs> chat rooms in China back then, in short period of time. And we have a lot of routines in the chat room. We have like about two to three hundred. People in chat room live <laughs> chat back in the nineties. Imagine that. So I mean, imagine this is like a clubhouse in the late nineties talking about the internet. That's yeah.、Amazing. But this is actually early stage of the community. So in order to make your community work, what is really important? Most important thing is not about you as individual talk about the content. It's about enabling that community. So you want to, not just you, but you need to have identify some. Community leaders and then create a chemistry between them, and then they will be taking shifts, continue to run your community. As you have more and more people, then you come off some of the process per se. How do you welcome new members? How do you moderate the conversations? How to bring up subject people want to talk about? How do you treat, I would say, troublemakers? Their troublemakers are negativities in the community. So it was pretty interesting. It was self-formed, and then you enable it. It was a lot of collaboration, and people got married in our community. People are doing business, established companies, and that was really fascinating for me because before that, you know, just a few years before that, people were still writing mail to each other. So all of a sudden, you have people never met each other, didn't have chance to see each other because it's all text-based. I was saying is you never know who's talking to you as a dog or, <laughs> but. Well, I mean, we were able to establish the trust, the foundation that companies were formed and marriages were enabled. So, I thought that is going to be something. I saw something that is, this is something technology is going to change the world and change how we work together, how we live our lives going forward. It will change how people and people communicate with each other. And then I just told myself. I need to work for an internet company. <laughs> <laughs> so I had that conversation with my parents again. They were like, "What's wrong with you?" <laughs> so you just finally got a pretty good salary at Apple, well-respected company, the brands, and now you want to move to a very remote city. In their perspective, because Hangzhou at the time was not Hangzhou today. It was this, I would say tier one city, but also. Not comparable when you mentioned compared to Shanghai and Beijing or Hong Kong. So I will be working for a company that nobody heard of. Everyone still work from Jack Ma's house. So they're like, "What are you trying to do? <laughs> What are you trying to run away from?" <laughs> I know I'm running towards something, not away from something. So that's when I make decision. I want to join internet company. There were not many options. There were Singa, which is the largest news blog. And then there's Suhu was Entertainment Portal, both are portals, and then there are two companies doing e-commerce, and Alibaba was one of them. So I just submit resumes to the two e-commerce companies because I want to do something that connect people, and I just want to see how business are done on the internet. Surprisingly, I got a call just a couple hours after the email was sent <laughs> directly by the director of HR. Lucy's one of the co-founders of Alibaba, and she had a conversation with me, which I never had before. It was not about what's the job qualification, what's your responsibility, what's your packages, all that. It was about mission. It really is about what is the company for, what do we want to do, 
there are so many small businesses who are struggling, and then they have to pay through middlemen to find buyers. So what we can do, how we can help them, was the impact of it. And I was very moved because the mission-driven statement and how she talks, as someone that has dreams and integrity and very real. So I was definitely this is like most amazing thing I'm doing. And then I met Jack and met the rest of the team, and there was no question in my mind that that's the company I should join. That's amazing. Well, I know that so Alibaba started several years after Amazon. So one of my favorite pictures is of Jeff Bezos in the early days of Amazon, and he's on that picture with the door that he got somewhere so he didn't have to pay for a desk. And there's that spray painted Amazon sign, and those are the early days that people saying, "Wow, that was so." Early on, relative to everybody else, and you were early on at Alibaba. What was the early days of Alibaba like, and the culture and the intensity of Jack Ma and being around? And I think you were employee number eighty-four, which is incredible. Well, that's the international number. So if you count as the headquarter, I think when I joined officially, we have like thirty-three, thirty-four people. Wow, and that was it. So obviously, know everybody and friends with everybody, and a bunch of young people. Have tons of time and energy, and we're trying to do something really big and help a lot of people. So that was really fun. I would say of probably my most enjoyable time. If you talk about working for other company, that's my most enjoyable time. And what was your role there? I'm sure early on it changed quite a bit, <laughs> but what was kind of the core so, focus that you had? So when I talked to Jack and Jack said, "Well, you're coming from Apple, that you had product marketing experience and." Our sales and marketing at the time, particular marketing, are in Shanghai. Would you like to go to Shanghai and work on the marketing stuff? And I said, No, no, no. I want to create stuff. And I want to market stuff. I want to create stuff. And he's like, Well, you're talking about producer, right? Because that time, back then, into night days, we called product managers as producers. Do you want to be producers? And well, you want to be producers, then all producers code. So the engineering background, and then. At the time, as a producer, you basically come up with the idea, you create the web, use I think Dreamweaver at the back then or front page of Dreamweaver, and then Dreamweaver and front page create a tons of really unnecessary code, right? particularly drag things back and forth, and then the code is not that clean. So you have to clean up all the HTML code, which is necessary because you have a rubbish code. What happened? The page is loading really slowly, and In the late '90s and early 2000s, if your page loading slowly, <laughs> you see zzzz going down. You don't want to churn your users, so we do the cleanup code, and then engineering team will put dynamic code in there. You review that, integrate it, and then basically push online. So there is a little bit of technology in there, so you have to understand it. And I said, "Well, everything's so new, so I can learn that too." So if it doesn't work out, I can do marketing, or maybe it's just not fit for the company. But give me an opportunity to try. So he did. He let me to try to be the PM, and then I think three months later, I was leading a small team of all innovation new products, and then another three months was leading a much bigger team, and basically majority part of the product team in China. So that was a great experience. What's really impressive is Jack. Is willing to give people opportunity to try something, not just pay based on what they came from. They have been proven to do something. He's willing to give people opportunity to 
make mistakes and try it out. And then he's very, that. also very encouraging as well. So think about the parenting. Is that our parenting is like, you should do this, you should yeah. do this, <laughs> do a good job. He would just say, you're doing a great job. You're doing this specifically really, really well. And then the first product I created at Alibaba was Alibaba Travel. Because at the time, we tried to create something that we can make money. Not just the marketplace, but we also have to figure out how we make money. So created the Alibaba Travel because small business always travel. Maybe you can do some hotel booking. So it's a three-people team. So we have one BD, one PM, one engineer work on this. And then we have some time of the QA and then some time of the design team. So very small team. And then we start making money. So it was very exciting. And I remember when the day of the launch of the product, I think from design to launch was really short, like maybe a month. Wow. <laughs> and then Jack came over and take a look. And he sat on my desk and he said, hey, everyone, because everyone's around us, is like, look at what she's working on. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Basically, it's a lot of praise. And I also had awesome boss, Toto, who was the head of product. So I think they're, I would say Lucy, Toto, and Jack are highly, highly influential for my early days in the internet industry. So they share something in common, which is the passion for helping people, the trust you give to a team who have never done that before. And just in general, it's really pleasant to work with. You get a lot of positive reinforcement. So it was fun. That's amazing. Well, you had mentioned that it's even in now, you mentioned that it was one of your favorite experiences working. You were there for a few years. Why did you leave? It seemed like it was still growing. You were, had a product there, creating a really amazing set of products, really fast and also profitable. What made you leave and where did you go? You mentioned a keyword, growing. Growing pain. <laughs> so... The company has a growing pain and I also have my growing pain. So in this case is that I, as someone in her early 20s and managed 10 people in a completely new industry and constantly created something that never been seen before. And I, after a couple of years, I feel like I was hitting my bottleneck of growth because I want to learn more. And then I just don't know. There are ways to figure this out. And I'm seeing again and again in entrepreneurs, if you think about Airbnb, if you think about where they have not been such a business model before or such a product before and completely new market. There were a lot of, I would say, for me, I was like, okay, I was thinking, how can I learn more? And Yahoo back then was the number one and they were new to the market. They were doing a lot of localization product, but they haven't yet created a lot of localized product. And I was recruited to do that. I was like, oh, great. So it's a blank canvas. You can create a lot of new product and localized product. And you have a large platform you can learn from what is the best practice. So I made my move. And so at the time, was Yahoo in China or did you move to the in States China. then? Yahoo in China, but tons of collaboration with U.S. And I think that was a great opportunity for me to learn, particularly when I started managing search. Search is a global product. That experience gave me very tight, frequent communication with the U.S. team and European team. And then it's not only just business team or product team, it's a lot of has to do with the communication with software engineering, data science, infrastructure. To create a different strategy in Asia, 
we call it double buy market. So English is single buy, but Korean, Japanese, and Chinese are double buys. So do you want a global index? You do want to do a CGK market index? How do you want to crawl those constantly balanced? Like how often do I want to crawl? Who do I want to crawl? And how do I balance freshness with comprehensiveness? What about the rating? How much human should interfere into this algorithm of ranking? So how do I understand people's search behavior? You put one word there. You may put in A, you might, right? I would say our very early stage of a lot of like machine learning techniques were used to understand user intent, to tokenize the search keywords, to figure out the ranking and recommendations. That has been great learning experience for what I'm doing today. Fast forward, so you were at Yahoo. When did you move to the States then? Was it during your time at Yahoo? Yeah, but it was not transferred by Yahoo. <laughs> I quit Yahoo, <laughs> but I was hired by Overture and Overture was acquired by Yahoo. So that's why years later, I bumped into Jack at Overture campus. And I was like, hey, <laughs> is it you again? He's like, you never get away from the family. <laughs> so it was pretty amazing that people... In this whole entire, we call it Overture, Yahoo, Alibaba family, because and some of the people from Yahoo to Alibaba, Alibaba to Yahoo, Overture to Alibaba. So there's a lot of common friends. So it was a great experience. Amazing. And so I don't want to fast forward your whole engineering and product management career, but you also now work at a leading venture capital firm. What was that transition like? And I'm guessing it was more growth oriented also, but I would love to hear that transition. So moved to U.S., worked for Overture, Overture acquired by Yahoo. Yahoo was very big. So I found myself had high visibility job, but a lot of my work was collaborating, communication, sync. Sync with everybody. Sync with all the Yahoo GMs, sync with all the international market, sync with the partner side. So after you finish all the sync meetings, you're done for the week. There was not much time to create new things. So I want to create. So left Yahoo with some of the friends from Overture and the Yahoo rebuild companies in the space that we're familiar with, which is EdTech, because we know search engine really well. We create a payful for, for, for the search algorithm. So with those two combined, then you can easily figure out what is the most efficient way to do SEO and SEM search engine optimization, search engine marketing. The ones that pay, the others pay. So we're the early ones kind of creating, not just as trying to use the data driving, use the data to drive decisions. How should you bid on one specific keyword? How much competition is out there? How much of the keyword is converted into an implied revenue or profit for you? Then you should never overpay for a keyword. Never let the auction being emotional or speculated approach. It needs to be data-driven process. So we've done something like that. And then that was a great learning experience as well, because the first company, as a tech company, alumni, so we always think about, like, okay, our customer are tech companies, and this is a field that we understand, the VC like that as well. But what was a great learning experience that went really well until 2008 recession hit us? So during a downturn economy, ad tech is really one of the industry got hit really fast because nobody's marketing. And if you're at tech company, you are not even at the front line with the customer. You're not collecting the money directly. You're a tool to support them. So 
that didn't go well. But the next company, we're thinking, well, doesn't mean the technology doesn't work. Is maybe the go-to-market doesn't work. Maybe we、we'll、pick the one that is too much correlation with the market. Maybe what you want to do is you want to do some resilient industry market growth in a downturn economy. So that's one way to start looking to okay, what kind of sectors will continue to have very healthy growth? So we'll figure a couple of things. One is that there are things that you can decide. Being born in the world, or you have to maintain the health. Anything like health or related to babies or something about last mile of your life, those things will not change because that's part of life, regardless of the economy. And then what other things that will be actually What be taking advantage of the downturn? Those are the ones are, for example, people are going back to education, get retrained. People want to have emotional attachment or companions, so pass industries up. People wants to have cheaper alternatives, so like McDonald, Walmart price went up, and stop buying new cars but buying a lot of used cars. So. We finally decided to focus on used car, secondary car market because, as the startup, you want to focus. But what's interesting is that that talk about if you're looking right now, you're seeing a lot of similarities. So Walmart price went up, Costco stock went up, and then you see technology went up, you know, learning went up. You see people buying more used cars, and you can see everyone, a lot of your friends, having new dogs. <laughs> so it's almost like repeating itself. You're seeing economic cycles, and that, in a way, is a great learning experience for myself as well. Because as an investor, you want to be able to invest in an upper trend, but also downtrend as well. So I'll go back to your original question. Sorry, that's a long way to get back to <laughs> your question about how do I become a VC. So doing the startup, obviously, in this case. One was not successful. One, the other one was successful. So then I realized there's so much to learn as entrepreneur, and I wish I should know that it's not only technology as product, product market fit, and then product market fit has market timing. So overall trend. When I thought I got everything figured out, then there is a capital game. So the overall economic market trend and. I knew very little back then about leverage and venture capital to do more. So, what's the risk associated with, etc., like board governing, all that. So, I start sharing with other startups, and then start become a mentor of accelerators like Five Hundred Startup, Market Lab in LA, and a few others. And through that experience, if you get repeat mentoring the same subject over and over. And you want to develop a curriculum, right? <laughs> so make things a lot easier. So I start develop a curriculum, and also through my interaction with the startup, and naturally you will find someone that you really want to back, and then become an angel investor. So this two track angel investing and teaching at the accelerator eventually become what I do now, which is adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon and also institution investor. So I want to say again, I was fortunate because my angel investment was done well. <laughs> that leads to where I am right now, and same as I think the curriculum that I have developed, and also the nonprofit accelerator I co-founded was a great foundation 
for my teaching today as well. Amazing. I mean, I could ask you so many more questions about your individual careers and when you left and why, but I'd love to start asking a few of the questions I ask all of the guests, starting with who or what inspires you? To answer that question, the first thing I want to say is that even before you get to the point and say, okay, who should I follow? Who should I get advice from? There's one thing that you have to be very clear is that what is the really most important thing for you? You mentioned earlier that there seems to be a lot of different tracks in my career. I'm doing this, doing this, and switch from here. And people are like, how you jump from here to here? And for me, there's not much difference, surprisingly. It's because, for example, I always encourage my students to find out that what is the common theme of your choices? And assuming those choices are really heartfelt, you really feel passionate about those choices. So what are the main drives? Then you do the onion peeling. You say, why am I doing this? And then they say, okay, I chose Apple. So why do I choose Apple? Because Apple has this and this. So why does the thing is important to you? And they just peel all the way to the bottom and you can find out what is the most important drive for you. And I have three drives. The first drive across my entire life, and I, I know that since I was a little kid, is I like to learn things, like you said. I want to have experience learning the new fascinating things. That's interesting. Keep life very interesting. Like I would never stop learning. The second thing I started realizing in my 20s, and I think Alibaba has significant impact on this, is that when you're doing something that has positive impact, you feel completely different. That gives you so much drive, so much rewards. That's better than anything, money and fame, whatever people talk about, like material things. So I will always want to do something that has the positive impact. So teaching is one. So you enable more people to do more important things. That's why I want to talk a little bit about email my teaching. Uh, one of the recent articles that CMU did is that my teaching is not only about giving knowledge or experience. You want to hand over that weapon. You also want to tell them that do the right thing. So the positive impact as a teacher, you can enable more students that appreciate that create a thoughtful or has social impact startups. You can do a lot more just than doing one startup by yourself. Same as a VC, as an investor whether you're a VC, angel investor, that invest in company, you truly believe they're doing something amazing. They can benefit a lot of people, either help people, healthcare startups that really cure the patients or meditation apps that help people find the peace in life or education, parenting. Those are all the positive impacts that you can make and you can empower that, you can participate it, but it's always part of the drives for me and doing something positive. The last part, in addition to learning and positive impact is you got to do it with the people you like. So have a great team working with the people you really enjoy to make days feel short. You definitely enjoy that. I think it's very difficult for people to get everything 100%, but you have this clear view of what's the most important thing to you, prioritization, and then opportunity comes, then you can take it. I love that. Yeah, and then just... If you think this three benchmark, nothing tells you the three benchmark learning positive impact and hang out with the people, work with the people that you are like, tells you anything about you should be a soldier, you should be a teacher, you should be a doctor, lawyer, nothing. So all of a sudden you have a very broad selection of career that you can do. 
I love that. I wrote down all three drives because I just think they're so positive. The idea is to never stop learning, to create impact and share your knowledge. And I think the community one is really interesting for you because you had mentioned in university, you mentioned at all your jobs, you've created this community with all and the chat room early on when you're working where the idea is you've created the sense of community everywhere you've gone. And that certainly amplifies your impact and also the learning process. I love that. Your parents, you had mentioned at some point in the beginning years of your career, they kept questioning, well, you're, now you're going to do what? And <laughs> you're going <laughs> to leave this job. At some point, I'm sure they stopped questioning you as you continue to, to grow and amplify your success. What are you most proud of? What I'm most proud of or what my parents are most proud of? <laughs> you, you specifically. And then I'm curious what their answer would be. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. We have a really good relationship and I keep back teasing my parents like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm most proud of, of all, everything I've done so far, I think teaching is the most rewarding thing to do. So I was fortunate enough, had great teachers along my way. Those teachers are not just elementary teacher or middle school, high school teachers, but also the teachers I met in my career path at Yahoo at different part of time. And there's a Chinese saying that if you travel with three, any random three people, at least one of them can teach you something. And I truly believe that's the case. So I have a lot of great teachers teaching me different things. The ones that I love learning the most are the one I would say, they didn't teach me skill per se. They teach me how to be a person, how to be a person that was big heart and how do you empower more people? That's incredible. You mentioned a few times the word luck. And if you're lucky enough to be at a certain company, if you're lucky enough to find mentors, if you're lucky enough to be at a certain company, but you've managed that luck by putting yourself out there. I'm curious, this is one question that I've added to the lineup because one of the listeners said, I'm curious to get their perspective of luck and how you feel luck has affected your life. Good luck, bad luck, all of it. I keep telling myself not to be foolish to think that everything that happened to me is all by myself. The luck part comes in terms of a timing of the industry, timing of the era that we're living and the location. I can give you a few examples of the thing of why I'm lucky. So we're living a period of time that we experienced the birth of internet, mobile technology, AI, blockchain, all this stuff. And as I mentioned, when I was a kid, I wrote letters. Like even in college, I wrote letters to my friends. Can you imagine that period with now? And I'm not that old even. <laughs> I don't think I'm that old. <laughs> So imagine what's going to happen for the rest of our lives. Now we're probably going to live 100 years old and with the innovations in house tech. And we're going to see so many different things. It's so fascinating. So I think that's lucky that we were born where we are. We're fortunate enough right now, I would say for now, we have not experienced war in our lifetime. And I hope that will never happen. So we should all contribute to that. We should bring people together. We should not enable any kind of dividing people based on the race, the belief, the geolocations and all that. So the unity is important. So that's the other part of that. We were lucky enough in, in a period of time, the, the peaceful time. And I think I personally also lucky because even though I made the choice to join internet company, and there are internet companies, Jack and I willing to give opportunities. I made a choice to come to move to U.S. And then I was fortunate enough, the country's welcoming immigrants and gave opportunities. And 
I chose tech companies and I was fortunate enough and tech company has high growth and there are so many different opportunities. If you're not happy with this one, go for that one. There's like thousands to choose from. So imagine that you want to make the choices, but those choices are enabled. And that's not in every part of the world. That's not in every period in history. So I just want to give some of the perspective in terms of luck, and then we should really appreciate that. Awesome. Love that answer. I read that you have many patents. What are some of the patents? Many patents are related to search engine, recommendation engines, text-based. I'm a very private person. I think it's true for consumer privacy. And I feel responsible because for everyone who are early inventors of search engine at, at tech, we wanted to create something that is relevant and useful. And remember, those are days that you go into any website, there are like banners flow everywhere. So you're like, I want more relevant as if not relevant, why well, you're just annoying me. So that's how we thought. And then we didn't say the flip side of the coin. I think anybody, I would highly recommend anybody who has been participating and going to participate in, in technology innovation, always think about the flip side and creating something really, really responsible. I do want to share a quote, and that is the quote as I always share with my student at the end of my lecture of each course. So this is something that being influential for me. It's a quote from Zen master Suzuki, and there's a book called Beginner's Mind to talk about it. But the most important thing he said is, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. So we should always have a beginner's mind. So you talk about earlier that the other speaker, that she is very inspired by young people. Because if you use a beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. We were say, they were saying, the old timers saying this cannot be done. Then if you always listen to old timers, nothing gets done. Because <laughs> right. it's always going to be what used to be that. But the whole environment is changing. Oh, I love that so much. I'll definitely include that. It gives me a lot of inspiration generally to hear things like that. And reminds me of children where I have a four and a seven-year-old. And all day, every day, they are asking why and testing the boundaries and pushing the boundaries. And I love that because then you say, well, no, you can't do that. Or I'm turning into my mom. I'll be, no, that's, you can't do that. That's the way it's done. And the idea is so much has changed, to your point, in technology 20, 30 years ago that they can now do and really go above and beyond anything. So I love that. A beginner's mind. I'm going to pick that up. Certainly the name of the show, I ask people either growth or failure. Initially, and this was back three years ago, I used to ask people to name their biggest failure or most impactful failure. And inevitably, people would mention some type of struggle or adversity in their growth moment. And so now I've changed the question to be if you can share one of or your biggest growth moment, whether it's personally or whether it's professionally, but if you can share that, that'd be great. I have so many failures to share. <laughs> so we can talk all day long about <laughs> failures, but failures are important. So that's how you learn. And I forgot one of the paper I read was talking about human brain has longer memory of pain than pleasure. So that's why you invest, you lose money, and that pain is burning your head rather than you making some money. So it was pretty interesting. So that's why we remember our failures, and that has a significant impact how we function going forward. So I can probably talk about two, not necessarily failure, but turning point of what I learned, why I was wrong before. So the first turning point was in college. 
in college. So I mentioned that I joined a participating tier one. So even though we're not top three or top five of tier one, I believe we're like easily top twenty. So we still have students coming from each state. There are different provinces, and there are the number one of the entire state. So imagine how smart they are. So the class of us, we have a fifteen of us. Each of them picking from each of the province every other year. So imagine how much of the competition that is. So I thought it didn't take me too much to study in middle school and high school, and I was able to manage to be be top of the entire grade. And I thought <laughs> you kind of self feel <laughs> like, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. And then you all of a sudden drop into a university. Everyone's so damn smart. And regardless how hard you work, there's still a gap. So that was a great learning experience. But then you kind of learn of like first you really want to catch up, and then you're like, oh shit, I'm not gonna catch up. And then they're like, okay, so there's a self doubt. And then at the end of the whole university experience, it took me probably like a one semester or two to adjust. And then I'm like, okay, there are people much smarter than me, but I have a lot of good qualities too. And knowing that you don't Have always to be the top one, and accept that, and still really appreciate yourself, is very important. I love that. Well, in your theme of learning, the idea that if you feel like you're the smartest person in the room, there's no chance to learn. So it teaches you and humbles you very quickly that there are going to be people who are smarter and faster and better than you. And it's the idea to always surround yourself with people you are inspired by and can learn from and ultimately grow with. It's important to learn. My conclusion from that is that it is not the most important thing to compete with other people. It is the most important thing to compare yourself. What's your learning in that journey? So if you're gonna compete without, always compare yourself with other people, regardless what it is. And people compare with knowledge and status and money or whatever. You want to compare the material thing. You want to compare the spiritual thing. There's always someone to compare to. Then you kind of. Get you caught into something you would never win, but why does that even matter? Because if you don't see them, you're quite happy. You're making great progress. You're learning a lot of things. You are making, for example, regardless that your learning experience or the things you do. And why does it even make sense when you introduce competition? Now, in sudden, you're frustrated. It didn't even change the foundation at all. So it's all in your mind. Love that. So that's one of the ones I've learned, whether it's in college, whether it's my first job, but it definitely resonates with me. And what is your second moment you had mentioned, the growth moment you wanted to share? The second growth moment, again, I want to thank Alibaba for it. We have to realize, and quite often we're living an ecosystem in you are surrounded by people who are like you, and then you think that is the value. So if you go into Silicon Valley, it's about like startup, entrepreneur, technology. You go to LA, it's media and all that influence. You go to New York, it's different. So every part of you, and you surround people who are like you, and you think that is the standard. Why is it related to Alibaba? Because before I joined Alibaba, I was in Beijing almost in the entire life back then. At Apple, it's surrounded by all the tech companies and already all the international companies, U.S. and Europe. So you think technology is the thing, but What was amazing is that Alibaba. We have very close relationship with our customers. We talk to them really often. We have them come to see our product, come to our office. And what is interesting is that after you're talking to so many, 
hundreds and thousands of small business. And you can see there are a variety of different ways to be successful. You can be making buttons. You can be making candles. You can be doing like drilling oil and all variety of different successes out there. There's not only one way. There is no who is higher, more premier than the other per se. And everyone actually are smart entrepreneurs in their own circle. That is, I realized that we're inherited to have bias of preference of the environment that you grew up with or you're surrounded by. And you should always remind yourself, you're not representing everybody. Beautiful. Absolutely love that. My favorite question to ask people outside of that one is, what's next for them? So what is next for you, given how much you like to learn, how much you like to impact people? But I'm so curious, what's next for Lake? I saw that coming. And I was thinking... Hmm, how much I should give it away? So a couple of things. I think that in the industry we're in, so what I've seen is that being a founder before and being a VC right now, I think there is a significant room to improve in this process. I'm always inherently pro-founder. I think founders are wasting significant time fundraising. And number one, fundraising is... I have never met a founder tell me, I love fundraising. Everyone's like, I hate it. I can't wait to go back to work, to building something I'm really passionate about. But fundraising is not just one time it's done. It's almost like you raise it in the next month. It's ongoing for sure. Ongoing. And then even worse is some of the founders saying, well, they're probably like one third of their time contributing to startups that are related to fundraising or managing investors. So, and that not even mentioning if you got the wrong people on board. That's a 10-year marriage with <laughs> 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 someone you really don't like. So I think that's one part I think really want to help founder on that. What I'm seeing right now, it's a marketplace problem now. So no difference compared to early stage Alibaba. We see a lot of manufacturers. We see a lot of buyers. But because the transparency of the information and trust factor, so they're bottlenecked. There is very little efficient connections that making them together. So I want to do something that in that line to really help founders. Love that. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And I will definitely follow up. But Lake, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. I had a blast in this discussion and look forward to more. Thank you so much for having me. 